Good Thanksgiving. You had a couple days off. Spent time with your family. It's good. <laughs> hey, so near the end of last year, I asked for your help. Uh, as we were working to plan out our sermon calendar for 2019 and part of 2020, uh, I wanted to know what Bible passages you would like to explore and which topics you would like to hear addressed from Scripture. And I, I want you to know that I worked to incorporate all of your feedback into our sermon plan. And we just finished a short series in Job. That was a request. And next week, we'll begin our Advent series in Ruth. And Ruth was a request. Uh, One of you uh, gave that recommendation. And this morning, uh, we're going to explore Romans 8, and that too was a request. And I'm just saying that to let you know uh, that you are a loved and valued member of this family, and that everything in this family is collaborative. That is, we, we work together. Um, we work together. So I want to thank you for working with me to craft um, our sermon calendar, and I look forward to gaining feedback again in the coming months for the second half of 2020 and all of 21. We're going to change it this time because last time when you gave input, I failed to ask when your rotation date was. So it very well may be that we're preaching stuff that was requested by people who have since left. So next time we play this game, I'm going to ask you also for your rotation date, That way we can, in part, prioritize where we're going based on when you're going to live here and when you're going to live somewhere else. We'll do it that way. So let's pray and ask our Father for help as we begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us here. I pray that you would help us to do what needs to be done in our hearts. Um, You know better than anybody else how, how volatile our hearts are, how weak they are, how strong they are towards our own affections and allegiances towards ourselves, but how weak they can be towards you. So Father, I pray again that you'd give us mercy, that you would bring our hearts to life through the Spirit, that you would show us a true glimpse of who you are so that our confidence in you would increase Um, And our confidence in ourselves to be who we're we're created to be would actually decrease so that we're less um, likely to be dependent on ourselves and autonomous this week, but that we really would just feel the gravity of our need for you and lean into you through Christ and through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I returned from Louisville, which I know I'm saying incorrectly, but I don't care anymore. I just get corrected every time, and I'm from the north, so y'all can say it however you want down there. I returned from Louisville last night, and uh, so my mom was recently diagnosed with an aggressive form of dementia, and so my siblings and I just decided to spend Thanksgiving together with our parents while mom is still well. Uh, like we used to before we dispersed around the world. Thanksgiving, especially once we started getting married off, Thanksgiving was the holiday that the ransoms all gathered, and Christmas is when we kind of went to the in-laws. And so uh, we, we took the opportunity to get together one more time uh, while we can. And I left to return home to Okinawa on Black Friday morning because standing in a TSA line on Black Friday morning is still far better than standing in a line at Target or Walmart. I'll take a TSA pat-down over a Black Friday beat-down any, any day. Honestly, though, I left on Friday because I wanted to be here uh, with you today. I wanted to be here. 
Of course, when I checked into Louisville uh, and the airport there on Friday morning, I was not 100% confident that I'd be uh, back in time to preach today. Between holiday traffic and unpredictable winter weather in Minneapolis, and it was in fact snowing while I was there, uh, which was great, and short windows in which to ca- uh, catch my connecting flights, I was optimistic that I'd be here, but not overly confident. Uh, in fact, I had my notes queued up to just send out to any one of our elders that would be here and be available to preach this morning. That's intercontinental travel, something that all of you are very familiar with. You are far from home or far from your destination. You're unable to get to that destination on your own. You're, you're powerless to make it happen on your own. And you're subject to so many potential unpredictable challenges that may keep you from getting to where you want to be. Many of us think about our salvation in that same way. We are optimistic, but not overly confident. We know we are far from home. We know we are unable to get home on our own. And we know that we face so many potential um, unpredictable challenges that seemingly would keep us from home. And so we wonder, will we actually make it home, all the way home? I mean, some of us have rebelled so hard. We ran so far from home, and so we face those consequences still. We struggle still. Our faith is weak. And even though many of you have already been rescued by Jesus, you know it's still a long way home. And though most of us project public confidence about our relationship with God, Many of us, the very same people who project that confidence, harbor serious doubts that we'll actually make it all the way home to our Father, even wondering some days, am I really a Christian? Like, does a Christian feel this way? Does a Christian think this way? Does a Christian do this thing over and over again? But our Father wants us to be confident, not in ourselves, but in Him and in Christ and in His Spirit. And that is one of the reasons that He gave us Paul's letter to the Romans, and specifically uh, Romans chapter 8. The theme of our sermon this morning is this, all the way home, how every rescued rebel son and daughter makes it all the way home. That's actually what Romans 8, 28 to verse 30 says. Actually, that was the request. Somebody wanted to hear Romans 8, 28 to 30 preached. But I can't preach Romans 28 through 30 without, well, just more, so... But let me read that part to you anyway, Romans 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What that says is every rescued rebel makes it all the way home. But we need to see those verses in context. So we're going to briefly overview where Paul has been in his letter to the Romans. And then we'll consider these verses in light of the rest of Romans 8. So let's start with the overview. Chapter 1, we can call chapter 1 of Romans wrath. Just in a word, wrath. Romans 1 tells us that we are under God's wrath. Paul says it this way, the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. And as rebels who rejected our father and ran from home and resolved to be us and do us apart from the father, 
we face his just judgment for our rebellion. Paul would use the word unrighteousness, but he's referring to our rebellion. Chapter two, in in two words, is no excuses. Chapter two of Romans says, we are rebels without excuse. Whatever reasons we have for our rebellion, whether we grew up with or without a knowledge of God, whether we grew up with or without good examples of Christianity, God shows no partiality. Romans chapter two tells us that we are without excuse for our rebel ways. Chapter three, in a short sentence, everyone is a rebel. We're all rebels. Some of us dressed our rebellion in religion. Others, the nuns and duns of our generation, threw off all religious pretense. Either way, either way, no matter who you are, the gospel cuts to the heart and diagnoses all of us as rebels. Romans 3 tells us that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. But in this chapter, we also learn there is a way back to the Father for every rebel son and daughter. There is a way to be justified. Justified means to be declared innocent of rebellion and to be in right standing with the Father. That way is not through our own work. There's nothing you can do to justify yourself. None of us can brag about the life we've lived or the way we've stayed at home with the Father or the way that we've made it home to the Father. We all need rescue. Chapter four in a word is faith. Paul gives Abraham as an example. Abraham believed in the work of the Father. That's key. That's what faith is. Believing not in your own work, but in the work of the Father. His belief was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared right. Paul goes on to say, our standing with the Father also depends on faith. Not faith in our own work, but faith in his work to get us home. Romans 4 tells us, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for all's also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Faith in the work of God. Chapter five, can summarize it this way, Adam to Jesus. Apart from faith in God, like Abraham, we stand condemned. What got us into this mess and what will get us out? Well, chapter 5, verse 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's all of us. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So we are born in Adam, we're condemned in Adam, and so you must repent and believe the gospel. You must repent of, not just, it's not, you're not just condemned because of Adam's sin. You are condemned because you're just like Adam. You rebel too. So you've got to repent. You've got to believe the good news of the gospel. And you must be reborn in Jesus. Chapter 6 is death to life. Paul writes, the wages of our sin is death. And so apart from the work of Jesus as slaves to sin, that's who we are. That's what we learn in Romans. We're slaves to sin. Death is the only possible outcome for us as rebels. But in the work of Jesus, Paul says that we can actually be dead to sin and no longer its slave and made alive to God. So while the wages of sin is death for us, what we learn is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life is found in Christ alone. Chapter 7 is really key right before we get to chapter eight. In chapter seven, we see that even though Jesus does the work for our rescue, the journey home will still prove to be exceptionally difficult, compounded by my inability to get myself home on my own. 
And so on the journey home, what we learn is we will have lots of doubts, lots of fears, profound inability, setbacks, failures, discouragements, and so many circumstances outside of my control. That's life, right? And I will, what we also see in chapter seven is I will have a newfound desire to submit to my father, something I did not have as a rebel. Uh, It's what I was created for, but my mind and my heart will be filled with competing and conflicting desires and affections, which will cause me to wander daily and will cause me to wonder daily, will I make it all the way home? Paul had this struggle. He's not talking about something we experienced that he didn't experience. Listen to this. This is Romans 7, 15, um, and then 18 to 24. Paul, write, Paul says it this way, I don't even understand my own actions. That's verse 15. He didn't even understand his own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies right next door, it's close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the key question right there. That is the key question that sets up chapter eight. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's our question too. We're just asking, will I actually make it all the way home? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Then Paul answers his own question and ours in the very next verse. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Father through Jesus will bring every rescued rebel all the way home. And so what we're gonna see this morning in Romans 8, we're gonna see five reasons why you and I should share in Paul's confidence that we will make it all the way home. Reason number one, the Father does for me what I cannot do for myself. Reason number two, the life-giving spirit lives in me. Number three, I am my Father's son. Number four, the Spirit helps me in all my weaknesses. And number five, the Father is committed to bring me all the way home. Five reasons that your confidence should increase, not in yourself, but in the Father, in his son Jesus, and in the work of the Spirit. So let's look at number one. The Father does for me what I cannot do for myself. Let's read Romans 8, 1 to 8 um, as we explore this. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk now not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. 
those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we meet two categories of people in this first paragraph. Those who live according to the flesh, also known as rebels who are far from home, far from God. And we meet those who live according to the spirit. What Paul's talking about are rescued rebels who are being brought back home. And when Paul writes the word flesh in here, what we need to know is your flesh, when Paul uses that word, he does not mean my flesh and bones body. Your body in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with your flesh. God created it and created it good. It's marred by the fall, but he's not talking about your body. What Paul's talking about, he's referring to your rebel orientation and your rebel tendencies as a, as a rebel. That's what he means in your flesh. And in this paragraph, we see those who live according to the flesh, rebels, have set their minds on the flesh. And the word mind is comprehensive, including our wills and our desires. So as a rebel, I, I willed to live in rebellion to the Father, and I desired to live in rebellion to the Father. I knew it, and I wanted it, right? I willed it, and I, I desired it. Paul says to live this way is death. In rebellion to our creator God, we will never know life or peace. So to live this way is hostility toward the Father who created us. It's ongoing, daily hostility, Paul says, because we don't submit to the Father because we don't want to. We don't want to submit to him. Like, let's just be honest here. We did not want to submit to God. And when we struggle now, even as rescued rebels, what's going on in our hearts, we do what we do because we want what we want. So when we choose rebellion, we're making a choice that is fueled by a desire not to submit to our Father, rather to submit to ourselves. Um, it's hostility towards the Father because we cannot submit to our Father. Like we didn't want to and we actually couldn't and we could not please our Father. You did see that in there, right? He's saying, in the flesh, we cannot please the God who created us. Now, that's a really dark place for a child. That is a sad place to be, to have the inability to please a father. We are created with an innate desire to know and be known by a dad. We all know this to be true from personal experience. We know this intuitively to be true. You have a deep, deep, deep desire to be known by a dad and to know a father and to love one and to be loved by one. We long to submit to and please a father. We long to be loved and accepted and affirm. A father's love and loyalty and voice are life-giving. And it doesn't matter how old you get. I'm 39 now and I was just home with dad for the week. And you know what my soul loved more than anything else? To hear affirming words from my dad. Never, never changes. But because of our rebellion, we knew none of that. We knew none of that. All we knew from the Father was a just condemnation for our rebellion. But the good news of the gospel that we read in verse 1 is this. There is no condemnation, no condemnation, none, past, present, or future for those who are in Christ. Why? Because the Father does what we were unable to do. I think we need to underline those verses, those words in verse 3. Could not do. That would probably be really good for all of our souls today could not do. Paul says the law could not do what needed to be done, couldn't make us right, but not because there was anything wrong with the law, but because it's weakened by you and me. So really Paul's saying it's not the law that had the inability, it was us that, that introduced the inability into the formula. It's weakened by you and me. It's our inability and lack of desire. We were or are the problem is what Paul's saying. 
We cannot do what needs to be done to be reconciled to the Father is what Paul is getting at. So how does the Father do for us, make us right with him, what we could not do for ourselves? The Father sent the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. We need to let those words sink in for a moment, especially as we enter into Advent, right? The Father sent the Son, Jesus, for sin. This was the purpose in sending Christ to the world. The father I rebelled against sent his only perfect son to take all the consequences for me, a rebel son, in my place. The father condemned Jesus in my place. And listen, before Jesus came, Jesus agreed to this plan. He knew what he was coming for. He knew he was coming for sin. He knew he was coming to be condemned in John Ransom's place. He agreed to the plan. And Jesus willingly took the wrath of the Father in my place. He was my substitute. And Jesus also fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law in my place. So not only did Jesus take my consequences, in the exchange, I get the credit for his perfect sonship, Jesus in my place. And then Paul says the Father sends the Spirit. Notice in this paragraph, the Spirit has the name of the Spirit of life, okay? The Spirit of life. The Spirit of life sets us enslaved rebels from the law, free from the law of sin and death. So God the Father working with God the Son and God the Spirit, it takes the entire Trinity to accomplish your rescue. That's how jacked up you, sorry, that was coming across a little harsh. That's how jacked up we are takes the full weight of the entire trinity. That's what, that's what was used to create the world. That's how much work it takes to rescue you and recreate the brokenness in you. He did what we could not do for ourselves. So why, we ask, will every rescued rebel make it all the way home? Well, the first reason is because our Father gladly does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Guys, this is supposed to increase our confidence, not in ourselves, but in our Father. We will make it home because of our dad not because of ourselves. And this rescued rebel will make it all the way home, number two, because the life-giving spirit lives in me. Let's read from nine to 13. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also, will, he will do it. He will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're going to make it all the way home because the life-giving spirit lives in us. So after Jesus was killed on the cross, the Father raised him back to life through the work of the Spirit. And now the Father is raising us from the death of rebellion back to life through the work of the same Spirit. In that paragraph we read, he will do it. In other words, there is no chance that he will not do it. There is is no acceptable chance that the Spirit will not raise God's kids back to life. And because the Spirit has been given to us, we are no longer in the flesh, right? So we're no longer oriented primarily around our rebel ways. It's no longer our primary orientation. 
And now by the work of the Spirit in our hearts, we are reoriented as we were meant to be in God's good creative design around the Father, around His glory, submitting to His will. Um, That's our greatest good. And that's that's why the Spirit is called the Spirit of life. He reorients us back around the Father who is the source of life. And so the presence of the Spirit and the evidence of His work stands as a constant reminder that we belong to the Father. We belong to Christ. We, We belong to them both. We are theirs. And because we belong to them, we no longer have to live like the rebels that we once were. Uh, What that means is, John Ransom does not have to look for satisfaction or affirmation or acceptance or identity or even love apart from my father. I find all of that perfectly in him. And this is really good news for us because we read verse 13 together. It said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So it's it's saying, if you live according to your rebel orientation, doing you, ruling yourself, pleasing yourself, being your own, like that's the pathway to death. You will die. If you look for satisfaction, identity, love, all of these things apart from the Father, you will die. That's what Paul's saying. So it's good news that the spirit of life has set us free because if by the spirit, Paul says, you put to death the deeds of the flesh, those rebel desires, he says, you will live. John Owen, my boy John Owen, uh, for whom we named my son, my real boy Owen, uh, John Owen says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He summarizes it way better than I can. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Now, listen, killing sin does not earn you a place in God's family, nor does it keep you in God's family. However, the daily work to kill the sin or to kill the rebel tendencies that I've lived my entire life with, that, that work is evidence that you are in the family, okay? It doesn't earn your place, doesn't keep your place, but it is evidence that you are in God's family. It's also how you primarily submit to Jesus. Like if it's for real that Jesus is your Lord, the way that that's demonstrated daily is I work to kill the rebel tendencies that I still, it's like whack-a-mole, they pop up, I kill them. They pop up, I kill them. And it's daily because it's just daily, right? For the rest of your life. But that's how we submit to Jesus. And killing sin is the way that I know life and it's how I am a life-giving person. If I am not eradicating the rebel tendencies from my heart, I will be selfish and I won't, I won't love and serve other people. I will use other people for my own best interests and, and for me, right? So it's also how we, we know love and we give life. Well, how do, I, how do I make war against my sin? Paul says, by the Spirit. They're like, all right, well, how, how do I do that? Like, do I just say those words? What do I do? What does it look like to kill sin by the Spirit? You remember Paul's conversation about spiritual armor in Ephesians chapter six? You remember that? Put on the full armor of God. Do you know what the only offensive weapon is in that entire suite of armor? You know what it is? How's the sword described? Whose sword is it? the sword of the spirit. And it goes on to say, what is the sword of the spirit? It's the word. So how do you kill your rebel tendencies? It's the word lived. You got to be in the word. The word's got to be in you. And it's not a knowledge of, although knowledge is key, it's a living of the word through the power of the spirit. That's what puts our rebel tendencies to death through the word lived through the power of the spirit. We're going to see a We're going to see the word spirit a lot in Romans chapter 8. The Greek word for spirit is pneuma, and pneuma appears 21 times throughout chapter 8. That's a lot for any chapter of the Bible. That's a lot. In fact, that might be more than anywhere else. That's that's a lot. Um, All but two of those words, pneuma, actually do refer to the spirit of God, because pneuma can also refer to your spirit, right? You've got a pneuma, your spirit, right? But 19 of those refer to the Holy Spirit. So if you do the math, the Spirit is mentioned once every two verses in Romans chapter 8. What does that tell us? 
It tells us that it's the Spirit's mission to bring rescued rebels all the way home to the Father. That's what it tells us. So why will this rescued rebel make it all the way home? Because the life-giving Spirit lives in me. He will do it. That's what he says. When I was a young Marine, I worked for a guy named Gunny Reyes. He's a little bit crazy. His favorite line was, it's good, it's done. So if you went to him, you had a request, you said something, like he'd cut you off mid-sentence, he'd be like, it's good, it's done. No, but what I mean, no, I said it's good, it's done. Like he did not even entertain anything after, it's just, it's good, it's done. And so we always, behind his back, would mock him for those words, and I'll just never forget, like those are his words, it's good, it's done. But that's what Romans 8 is saying about the work of the Spirit, it's good. It's done. If he says he's going to do it, it's as good as done. And this rescued rebel will make it home, uh, number three, because I am my father's son. Beginning in verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God, we're, we're written into the will. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we've already seen that the spirit brings us to life and affirms that we belong to the father. But we don't belong to the father in an impersonal way, okay? You don't belong to the father like your stuff belongs to you. You don't belong to the father like your Black Friday deals now belong to you. We belong to him as sons. It's personal. We just read that the Spirit himself personally bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What that means is he speaks to us and reminds us over and over again that we are sons and daughters. That's my favorite activity with my kids every night when I tuck them into bed. Just getting down next to their ear and whispering things to them like, you know you're my son, right? You know you're my, you're my daughter, and I love you, and I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of you. I love you, daughter. And nothing will ever change that. You're always my son, and you're always my daughter. Those are beautiful moments to share with your kids. But that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's one of his primary roles with us, uh, speaking to us on behalf of the Father. You're a son, and I love you. You're fully loved, and you're fully affirmed in Christ. You're fully accepted, and nothing will ever change that. And guys, our sonship is so complete, so full, that Paul says we are co-heirs with Christ, written into the will. So just as Jesus as an heir will never cease to be a son to the Father, as co-heirs with Christ, neither will we. Our status as sons and daughters is irrevocable. Just as Jesus is forever a son, so we too in Christ are forever sons and daughters. It would be ludicrous to think of Jesus in any other relational role other than the Son of God. It's who he is. Well, guys, in Christ, it's just as ludicrous to think of ourselves as anything other but a son or a daughter. It is irrevocable, not because of what you have done or prayed or said, but because of what the Father through Christ and the Spirit has done for you. And Paul means for this to be a profound source of confidence for us. In verse 15, he writes, we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption to sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Father does not want us to live in fear that someday he may disown us because we fail, fall short, or don't measure up. The only son who did not fall short was Jesus. The only son who does not fail is Jesus. The only son who measures up is Jesus. 
And we are accepted in Jesus, not because of who we are or what we do. So in place of fear now, we are given this freedom to call out to the Father in our shortcomings. and in our, We don't have to be fearful in our shortcomings and our failure. The Father already knows of them and has actually accepted us because of them in Christ. And so rather than fear, we can cry out with confidence like a child calling out for their daddy. That's what the word Abba means. We're confident because we know that we are kept and loved as sons and daughters, fully accepted, fully affirmed in Christ, shortcomings and all. Confident because we know every time we call out to dad for help, help is exactly what we get. It's what we get when we call out to our dad. So why will this rescued rebel make it all the, all the way home? Because I am my father's son. He's my dad. And every rescued rebel will make it all the way home, number four, because the spirit helps me in all my weaknesses. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Maybe underline that. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For Here's how weak we are, guys. We do not even know what to pray for as we ought to. Don't even know. Just think about that for a minute. You don't even know. That's pretty weak. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, that's you, according to the will of God. The Spirit helps me in all my weakness. Look, the road home is hard. It is a road that will be marked by suffering, okay? It will, your road home will be marked by suffering. Hopefully our, ser- our series in Job removed any doubt that that's a real possibility for us, a likelihood. And in verse 17, we read that the sons and daughters who make it all the way home to the Father, every one of them actually, the ones who make it home, will share in Jesus' sufferings along the way. It's a given. And the suffering will expose my weakness and remind me of my need for help. But when we make it home to the Father, what this passage said is, home will be so good that all of our suffering will be suddenly incomparable. The stuff that's rocking our world right now will be an afterthought. We will be fully at rest, fully restored, fully at peace, fully healed, and the suffering we encountered on the way home will be inconsequential then. Not because the suffering was really not that bad. Don't ever say that to anybody. It's bad. It's really bad. Life's hard. It hurts. So it's not that the suffering was not really that bad after all. See, I told you. No, the suffering's bad. It's inconsequential because being home with the Father will be that good. It will be so good. So good. It's what you're created for, and it'll be the first time in your life you, have, you will have known that in its full beauty. You don't know it yet, but you will, and it will make all suffering seem inconsequential. 
But the road home is still really difficult, full of impossible challenges, because we live in the space between the already of what God has done and the not yet of what he is going to do. And that's what Paul describes in this paragraph. In verse 23, he says, we are waiting eagerly for our adoption and redemption. But you're like, wait, hasn't that already happened? Wasn't I already adopted? Wasn't I already redeemed? Well, yes and no. This is where it's helpful for us to review the three tenses of the gospel. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved. Uh, Jesus said it's finished. He did all the work necessary on the cross. He rose from the dead. He's done everything necessary for my adoption and redemption. It's done, okay? He's done it. I have been saved when I repent and believe the gospel. But we are also being saved. The journey home is the setting in which that salvation is being worked out. So it's been done, and now it's being worked out over the course of my lifetime. I'm being saved, and we will finally one day be saved. This is our future hope. When we make it home, we will know the reality of our adoption and redemption fully, but not before then. We don't know it fully right now. We only know it in part. And when we make it home, we will know it fully and beautiful beautifully, but not before. And until then, we live in this broken world where rebel tendencies remain in my heart. We know it every day. We, they are our constant enemy. And the Father is working to root out all of those tendencies. He's working to root every one of them out of your heart. He calls me a son. He calls you a daughter. And it's true. You're a son. You're a daughter. And on this journey home, he is growing and changing me into what he has already declared me to be. That's how God works. He declares us to be something, and then he makes it come true in our lives. We are being saved. We are becoming fully what he has already declared us to be. And in the meantime, as we wait, it's going to be difficult. How difficult? Well, Paul says of all creation, all of creation is waiting for this moment. And in the waiting... All of creation groans together in the pains of childbirth. The dude who's never given birth uses, of all metaphors, the pain of childbirth. That's how bad it's going to be. That's how, how great the tension is. Now, 40% of the room is looking at me and saying, well, that really sucks. That's really bad. 60% of you have no idea. And I tried to think of some examples on the plane to help you understand, but I can't. Um, you're going to have to help me out, ladies. I don't know. Uh, maybe guys waiting for your EAS. That's kind of like childbirth. <laughs> there's a shot. I don't know. It's a long ways away. And there's going to be a lot of hard stuff in between. Like, I don't know. They all fall short. Every example falls short. But it's waiting and it will require patience. It will have a deep groaning with it. It's going to be difficult on this journey home. And Paul says on this journey home, Rescued rebels will have to endure with patience, hoping for and looking forward to what we just can't see right now. You remember waiting as a kid? It's a near physical impossibility, isn't it? Not just emotional, like it's physical. I love with my kids, like you want them to wait and you're like, all right, don't look, close your eyes. They can't keep them closed. It's a physical impossibility. The eyelids are coming open. So you put your hands over their faces and they're trying to do this. Like it is physically impossible to wait. They need so much help because they're so weak. But this is exactly who we are, guys. It's like a physical impossibility to us. If you could fall out of the family, you would. If, if, if you could walk your way out of the family, you would. And this is exactly why we have been given the Spirit. He helps us in all our weakness. I don't stay in the family because I'm an awesome Christian. I stay in the family because the Holy Spirit is working to keep me in the family, and he's awesome at what he does. Paul... 
Paul even says in our inability to pray well, in our inability to even ask the Father for what we need most, it's the Spirit who prays on my behalf. And he always prays according to our Father's will. Most of the time I pray according to my will. The Spirit always prays according to the Father's will. So why should you be increasingly confident that as a rescued rebel you will make it all the way home? Because the Spirit of God helps you in all, all, all your weakness. And you got a lot of it. Finally, every rescued rebel will make it all the way home because, number five, the Father is committed to bringing me all the way home. Beginning in verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, everything we need to make it home? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? You're going to change God's mind about my adoption? No, because it's God who justifies. So who's going to condemn me now? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You fill in the blank. Will that thing separate you? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a prophetic psalm from the Psalms, just speaking to the suffering that God's people will endure in every generation. Will that separate God's kids from God's love? No, not even that. Verse 37, nope. In all these things, all these things, we are more than conquerors, not because we're awesome, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 27, Paul says that all things in life will work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we know he is talking about, re about rescued rebels because rebels who have not been rescued do not love God. What is the good that Paul is talking about? What does he mean that all things will work together for good? Well, we have to read the verses following to understand what he means. We saw that in verses 29 to 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is the good that Paul's talking about? That I will be brought home and that when I get there, I will be just like Jesus. That's the good he's talking about. All things in life by God's design will work together to get me home. That's the good he's talking about. There's not another good he has in mind here. Well, I take that back. The other good is that when you get home, you will be just like Jesus, the only perfect son. Now, sadly, some of these words in these verses are often used to stir up controversy, foreknew, predestined, right? That's tragic. That's really tragic. And honestly, it's something we all need to repent of. 
Our Father tells us these things not to stir up controversy, not to give us an opportunity for an argument, but to instill deep confidence in his kids. These verses aren't given to us for a debate. They are given to us for dad bragging. That's why he gives them to us. Not for debate, but so that we can look at our dad and be like, man, that is amazing. It's amazing what he does to get us all the way home. What did he do? He foreknew us. What's that mean? It just means that before I existed, before I rebelled, God purposed to know me personally as a son. That's all foreknew means. He did that for me. And then he predestined. In other words, he planned how I would be made a son. He planned my rescue. He planned my restoration. And he planned how he would conform me to Jesus. Why is that threatening? Why is that controversial? That's beautiful that I would have a father who would choose to know me and then choose my, my rescue so that I wouldn't be a rebel anymore. Not, not debate, dad bragging. And then he called me. What that means is the father would not wait for me to come home. He wasn't going to sit around and wonder, hey, well, John, is John going to like repent and come home? Why? Well, because John wasn't going to repent and come home. So rather than waiting, the father came to me and he called out to me, son, come home. <laughs> That's a good dad. And then he justified me. He declared me right, even though I am clearly in the wrong, but I'm right because Jesus in my place. And then he says, I'm glorified. Glorified is just the finish line. Okay, think of glorified as the finish line. Glorified means I have been brought all the way back home and I have been fully restored in the image of Jesus. But notice the tense of these words, especially the word glorified. It looks like it's past tense, doesn't it? Looks like he's saying it's already done, but are you glorified yet? Are you home? Are you like Jesus? No. So this is being spoken from our father's perspective. And in our father's perspective, the reason he puts it in that tense is to communicate to you a weak son and daughter, but it's already done. Like I'm going to do it. Um, so while we're still in process on the way home, the father is signaling to us, don't be afraid, son. Don't be afraid, daughter. I am bringing you all the way home. It's, it's as good as done. It's good. It's done. And to reinforce this reality, to instill greater confidence in our father and in our rescuer Jesus and in the presence and work of the spirit, Paul closes this chapter with a series of questions that we read. What then shall we say to these things? What do we say to these things? I am going to make it all the way home because of my father. If God is for me, who can be against us? Well, no one can be against us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Guys, look at what the father has already done for you. And when you, when you see what he has already done, how in the world could we question what he has yet to do to get us home? Like, is that even realistic anymore? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And who's going to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Not only did Jesus take all of our condemnation, Jesus joins the work of the Spirit. You have, think about this, two members of the Trinity praying on your behalf all the time. You're going to make it home. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, will distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, I cannot be separated from the love of my Father. I cannot be separated from the love of my Father, and neither can you. It's an impossibility. He's relentless in his pursuit. He's relentless in bringing his kids home. 
Guys, I just have to be honest to you, that was so meaningful as I thought about my mom. Her dementia will not separate her from the father. She will forget God on her journey home, right? I mean, doctors say she's probably got two good years, and then there will be a rapid decline, decline, and in that decline, she will forget probably everything she has ever known. She will forget God. She will forget Jesus personally, right? Her heart and her mind will, will, will take a step away. But the father won't forget her, and he won't quit. He won't quit. That's encouraging as I think about myself. Man, I have a daily struggle to rehearse and believe and live in the gospel. I have a daily struggle to rehearse my identity as a son and live in the reality of that identity. So this is encouraging to me. It's meaningful as I think about every one of you. My only hope for you this morning is that you would grow in confidence, not in yourself. The culture already offers you enough platitudes, empty platitudes, by the way, for that. My only hope is that your confidence in yourself to get yourself home decreases, diminishes, is destroyed, and that you place all of your confidence in your good father. It's meaningful as I think about everyone here in Okinawa who has not yet been adopted in, because we learned here that God is working to create a really big family with lots of kids. We saw it in verse 29. It says, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Guys, when the Bible uses the word many, it means a really big number. So God is adopting in a really big family. So there are many rebels yet to be rescued here in Okinawa. Are we pursuing them like this is true? Are we pursuing them with confidence that our father is actually going to adopt them in? Guys, this morning, every rescued rebel is going to make it all the way home. This truth should propel us to repent, to believe the gospel, to rest in our father, to rest in the work of Jesus, to rest in the work of the spirit, to get up and kill sin and then repeat. That's what a Christian is and does. Nothing more beyond that. That's day one, and that's day 1,001 and 10,001 until the Father brings us home. Repent and believe the gospel. Rest in the work of Christ. Kill my sin and get up and repeat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your commitment to us. You are so good. I pray that you would crush the confidence that we have in ourselves, especially if we grew up in, in religious settings where we've learned Bible verses and learned to be really good Christians. Father, please crush that confidence and place all of our confidence in you alone. Father, for doubting hearts this morning, pray that you would strengthen them by your grace uh, through the work of the Spirit. Father, I pray that as we worship together now, all of our eyes and all of our hearts would look to, look to Christ and worship him like the rescuing king that he is. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.